Go ahead and turn with me uh, to Matthew chapter 13. And we will pick up there in a moment. We are continuing on in our series of practicing the way of Jesus. The first week, Matt briefly explored the practice Jesus modeled to us, and it was stepping back from the craziness of life to be alone with the Father. This was described in the scriptures as the desert or the lonely place. And throughout church history, the language has been given to this practice has been silence or solitude. To recap last week, we discussed the three primary aims of the disciple of Jesus. They are to be with Jesus, to be like Jesus, and to do what Jesus would do if he were us. Our key text from last week was John chapter 15 about the branch abiding in the vine, abiding in Jesus, and bearing much fruit. The primary tenet of last week was that before we dive headlong into the practices or the doing, we have to root ourselves in the truth that is Jesus and the truth that he demonstrated and which the scriptures declare. And it is this, we were created for and intended to be with God. He is our end. He is our aim. And the practices keep him at our center. Being like him and bearing fruit flows from our life with him. <clears throat> if last week was the why, this week is the how. How do we live lives rooted in the vine? Lives that abide in Jesus and keep him at our center so that we are fully able, and in fact, it's our default to walk with him in his way. How do we practice what he practiced? in a meaningful way that our lives experience the richness of the kingdom, the companionship of the Father, and the realities Jesus described in the Sermon on the Mount. All of these, Jesus simply summarized to us as abundant life. So with that, let's turn to Matthew chapter 15, picking up in verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, quote, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on the rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Then later on, he said to his disciples, Listen to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they only last a short time. When trouble or persecution comes 
because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop, yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are thankful that you uh, are the good sower who scatters the seed, who sows diligently and consistently, um, lovingly. Uh, we pray that you would give us uh, receptive hearts, um, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. We love you. Amen. In his book, Soul Keeping, John Ortberg captures the modern condition when he says this, and listen closely, see if any of it resonates. There is a kind of fatigue, a soul fatigue, that attacks the body when we stay up too late and when we rise too early. When we try to fuel ourselves for the day with coffee and a donut in the morning and Red Bull in the afternoon. When we refuse to take the time to exercise and we eat foods that clog our brains and our arteries. When we constantly try to guess which line at the grocery store will move faster and which parking space is closest to the mall, our bodies grow weary. There's a kind of fatigue that attacks the mind when we are bombarded by information all day at work, when multiple screens are always clamoring for our attention, when we carry around mental lists of errands not yet done and bills not yet paid and emails not yet replied to, when we are trying to push unpleasant emotions under the surface, like holding beach balls under the water at a swimming pool, our minds, they grow weary. There is a kind of fatigue that attacks the will. We have so many decisions to make. When we are trying to decide what clothes will create the best possible impression, which foods will bring us the most pleasure, which tasks at work will bring us the most success, which entertainment options will make us the most happy, which people we dare to disappoint, which events we must attend, even what vacation destinations will be most enjoyable, the need to make decisions overwhelms us. Our wills grow weary with so many choices. These categories of fatigue are difficult enough in and of themselves, but they combine to make us feel separated from God, separated from ourselves, and distanced from what we love most about life and creation. <clears throat> Said similarly, but capturing the condition in a different way, Dallas Willard gives us this synopsis. The barrier is the overwhelming presence of the visible world. The visible world daily bludgeons us with its things and its events. They pinch and they pull and they hammer away at our bodies. Few people arise in the morning as hungry for God as they are for cornflakes or toast and eggs. But instead of shouting and shoving, the spiritual world whispers at us ever so gently. And again, Jesus says to us, which we brought up again last week, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My yoke is easy and my burden 
is light. If we are honest, much of our lived experience resonates more with what Jesus described as a seed being choked out by the worries and the deceitfulness or the distractions of life, or what Ortberg and Willard described above, weary, bludgeoned, hungry, fatigued. Our hearts, we recognize this, but our hearts still long for what the psalmist describes in Psalm 1. Happy is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and on this law, that person meditates day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, yielding fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, Whatever they do, prospers. Or what David described as his lived experience in Psalm chapter 16. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I hold the Lord always before me. And with him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. But what are we to do? This, that we just read, this is the life we long for. We love Jesus and we trust him, yet this is not our lived experience much of the time. It's sadly not my lived experience much of the time. Always yielding fruit, leaves that do not wither, meditating on him day and night, holding the Lord always before me. I hunger for Jesus' easy yoke. His light burden. And if we, mem- if we remember from last week, Jesus' yoke is his way. It's his way. It's his practices, his lifestyle, his way of shouldering the burdens of this life. It's his way of living in the here and now. For he says to us that eternity or the abundant life is available now. His kingdom is at hand. He invites us to follow him, not later, now. But entering into Jesus' lifestyle is easier said than done. The ease, lightness, and power of his way we don't often enjoy, as we've discussed, must less seem as a pervasive and enduring quality of our mundane human existence. Why is that? We start with Jesus in the grace held out to us in the gospel, and it's so, so good. We are filled with the Spirit and the assurance of our forgiveness and our adoption. It's firm. It's like, as uh, the writer describes in the New Testament, like an anchor for the soul. But life moves on, and as we take deep dives into Scripture and we read the words of Jesus, we are, like many of our contemporaries, shocked at some of the things that Jesus has to say. We may chalk them up to an expression of hope, statements of a future reality, or frankly as words that are bewildering. The idea they express is obviously one that attracts and delights. But there seems to be something about the way we approach them, something about what we think it means to walk with Christ and obey him, 
that prevents most of us from entering into the reality which his words express. We agree that it would be far better off in our world a better place if we were to fully conform in deed and spirit to who he is and what he taught. Eugene Peterson captures the dilemma in this way. Jesus as the truth gets far more attention than Jesus as the way. Jesus as the way is the most frequently evaded metaphor among the Christians with whom I have worked for 50 years as a North American pastor. We cannot skip the way of Jesus in our hurry to get to the truth of Jesus as he is worshiped and proclaimed. The way of Jesus is the way that we practice and come to understand the truth of Jesus. Living Jesus in our homes, in our workplaces, with our friends and our family. Ways and means that are removed or abstracted from Jesus and the scriptures that give witness to him amount sooner or later to a betrayal of Jesus. In this kingdom of God world, the person that we follow is, prime, is the primary shaping influence of the person that we become. To enter into his way and to follow him, simply put, to take his yoke upon us, is to live as he lived in the entirety of his life. Adopting his overall lifestyle, following him and walking with him, does not simply mean to do what he did when he was on the spot, so to speak. It's to live as he did, as he lived in all of his life. Dallas Willard adds this. Our mistake is to think that following Jesus consists in loving our enemies, going the second mile, turning the other cheek, suffering patiently and hopefully, while living the rest of our lives just as everyone else does around us. It's a strategy bound to fail and to make the way of Christ difficult and left untried. When I was a kid, I loved sports. Playing and watching sports, it didn't matter. And I had players that I would idolize. Of all the sports, the players that I idolized the most were Major League Baseball players. I was constantly in awe of how hard they could throw it, how far and consistently they could hit it, how smoothly they could feel the ground ball or sprint and track down a fly ball. And I didn't just idolize them, no. I wanted to be just like them. I loved how Ken Griffey Jr. could turn a single into a double, could seamlessly steal a bag and hit a ball into the upper deck. So, naturally, I did what I saw Ken doing because I wanted to be like him. I wore my hat backwards. I got some of that sweet eye paint and put it under my eyes. I tried to catch fly balls, not properly, but down low like you're catching a loaf of bread. And Nolan Ryan, don't even get me started on Nolan Ryan. He was meaner and could throw harder and strike out more hitters than anyone who had ever played the game. And I was, I was smitten. So I pulled my hat down low because Nolan did. I threw fastballs, a lot of them, because Nolan did. And Nolan wasn't afraid to come inside high and tight, often hitting batters which led to Nolan getting into brawls. So because Nolan did, okay, maybe I didn't get into fist fights like he did, but everything else I emulated. 
And guess what? None of it made a lick of difference in how I performed in the game. The throwing and the hitting and the fielding and the catching, no different. Even if in all of my earnestness, I wanted to be just like them. What I didn't know then and later would learn, and I'm sure many of you know, is that their ability to perform with the precision and excellence that they would perform in games was not a result of their in-game efforts. It was a result of their minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, habits and practices that they have been doing routinely since their youth. The outcomes in each game were a product of their consistent commitment to skill acquisition and refinement physical training, diet, exercise, film study, etc. In short, their ability to perform in the game was a product of their lifestyle. We laugh at a story like this because intuitively we know this to be true about how human beings change. We cannot expect to perform in the game or to perform on the spot or get our desired outcome automatically even if we earnestly desire it. We know we must adopt the overall lifestyle and set of routines and rhythmic habits and practices that will allow us to be the kind of person or athlete who could achieve the desired result when the game is on. M. Scott Peck observes this. There are many people I know who possess a vision of personal evolution, yet seem to lack the will for it. They want and believe it is possible to skip over the discipline to find an easy shortcut to sainthood. Often, they attempt to attain it by simply imitating the superficialities of saints, or Ken Griffey Jr. Retiring to the desert or taking up carpentry. Some even believe that by such imitation, they have really become saints and prophets and are unable to acknowledge that they are still children and face the painful fact that they must start at the beginning and go through the middle. And modern study of behavioral change bears this out as well. Outcomes are the lagging measure of your habits or your daily practices, whether they are done consciously or subconsciously. Change is the result of slow, methodical, and micro habits that transform us from one degree to the next. Experts have described this like an ice cube sitting in a room of sub-freezing temperature. The temperature begins to increase from one degree to the next, and nothing seems to be happening. The ice is still frozen, but with the shift to 32 degrees, the ice begins to melt. Or like the stone cutter who hammers away at the stone hundreds of times without anything to show for it. Yet at the several hundredth and first hit, the rock splits. It wasn't the last hit, but all the blows that had gone before. The things we do, they do something to us. And this is not even a modern concept. It's an ancient concept. And in the history of the church more specifically, the language that they came up with 
when describing the practical, habitual manner in which we follow Jesus, they called it a rule of life. It's not rule as in rules, but rule, which comes from the Latin word regula, where we derive words like ruler or regulation, and it means a trellis. Early church fathers and mothers got this idea from the passage we read last week in John chapter 15 about the vine and the branches. A trellis is a wooden lattice or structure that the vine grows on. And any gardener or vineyard owner knows that in order for the vine and the branches to flourish and to bear fruit, a trellis is needed as the backbone to the plant. It gives it support for growth and keeps the plant and the fruit off the ground and out of the dirt. Now, we live in a society that loves goals, right? Your New Year's resolution, your five-year plan, your 10-year plan. But any behavioral scientist or even just individual with any lived experience will tell you that setting a goal in and of itself does not create change. For example, every sports team has the same goal. It's to win a championship. It's our rhythmic and repeated habits or practices or processes or systems that create change. And as the follower of Jesus, we recognize that whether intentional or unintentional, our repeated practices are doing something to form our spirit, our inner man or our inner woman. A rule of life, simply put, is our repeated practices and rhythms that give shape to who we become. As a disciple of Jesus specifically, a rule of the, our rule of life are our intentional practices and rhythms that create a rich soil for transformation into the likeness of Jesus. But whether we follow Jesus or not, the reality of, of it is that each of us already has a rule of life, even if we haven't intentionally thought it out. We have a framework in which we navigate and carry the burden of life. It's not an either you do or you don't scenario. Habits of spiritual formation are not just a, a luxury for the select few or for clergy or for those living in the monastic order. It's a recognition that all of life is sacred and each of us, whether we follow Jesus or not, are being spiritually formed by our habits, our rhythms, our practices. And we each have a rule of life. What we are emphasizing, and as disciples of Jesus, what we long for is that our spirits will be formed into his likeness. That instead of taking on the framework or the, or the rule of life or the yoke that our culture offers us, we are choosing the rule of life that centers on him, that supports our abiding in him like a branch in the vine. The practices of Jesus's way, these are the components of a rule of life. And they orient us around Jesus and his kingdom. These practices or these components will be unpacked all throughout the summer. However, we are starting the discussion now and want you all to begin to think 
in my current season of life, with my unique responsibilities and giftings and limitations, what would a rule of life look like now? And as we discuss further Jesus' habits and practices throughout the summer, practices that have been continued on throughout church history, we want to start formulating how you can fit them into your rule of life if they are not already part of your rhythms. So, for all you doers out there who want to start drafting something immediately, go for it. But understand that we will be going in depth on each key practice, which is not exhaustive, by the way, the practices that we're going to go over this summer. And over the next couple months, our hope is that it will help you, our discussion, our deep dive, will help you refine more fully what it means to follow Jesus in your day-to-day. But for today, we want to start with a simple exercise that will help you uh, start this process. So our encouragement for you is to sit down sometime this week and audit your current habits. Think about what you do with your days and your weeks. We are so used to doing what we have always done or just doing simply what's imposed on us by our schedules, our jobs, our family, or what our culture demands. One of the greatest challenges is gaining objective awareness of our daily rhythms and practices. So, in auditing your habits, a helpful tool is the habit scorecard, which we'll talk about this morning. And this was first introduced to me by uh, an, an author and thinker in the kind of the world of behavior change. His name's James Clear. But the exercise is simple. What you do is you sit down and you write out what you would do on a daily basis. Start when you wake up and then work through your day. Again, these can be things that are intentionally done or unintentionally done. Maybe there are things you scheduled or maybe there are things that you just recognize as you're going through, I just do these things on a daily basis. So uh, it may look something like this. So this is just a brief example starting at the beginning of your day. I wake up, uh, this is just a flow. I wake up, I typically check my phone, I go to the bathroom, I make coffee, drink smoothie, read scripture, commute to work, and on and on it goes. Now, this looks a little maybe not real life. This is a little bit more real. This is Leah's. I didn't ask her, but this is what Leah's um, kind of habitual morning looks like. Wake up because of Clark. Go to the bathroom. Get coffee. Get Clark up. Have interrupted quiet time. Thanks, Clark. It's her. Yeah. And then just fully postpone devotions to be decided when she'll get back to him because, hey, Blakely's up. And then, you know, it's like food. When, when does food happen throughout the day? So that maybe looks uh, a little bit more real life, but essentially after we list our daily habits, the question we then ask is if the habit is good, bad, or neutral. But the question does not stop with, is the habit good or bad, meaning like right or wrong? That's good to be asking, but there's more. It's, the question is, who am I becoming by this choice, by this rhythm, this practice? And going a step further for being a disciple of Jesus, the question is, is this making me more or less like Christ? Is this forming me more or less into the image of Jesus? If they are positive habits, we put a plus sign next to it. If not a helpful or a detracting habit, put a negative. 
a negative sign. If, if neither or neutral, then just put an equal sign. So, depending on your current stage of life, identity, or unique wirings, your, your habit scorecard could look like this. So you can see kind of the pluses and the minuses. So say this is kind of the second half of the day. Um, if for me, I recognize that after work and at the end of my days, I have no relational energy to connect with God or others, I may notice that I habitually lean towards mindless entertainment with tech. Maybe this is because I best connect with God when I'm well rested. Maybe it's because I have constant access to my phone. Maybe it's an access issue. Maybe it's because I spent, I'm so spent at the end of my day because of how I hurry and cram too much into the rest of my day. Whatever it is, this is just an example. And it expresses some of my unique wirings, but it should give you a framework of how to work through the exercise. So, Part of the question is, what does that have anything to do with the rule of life? And as we look forward in how that exercise translates into us, whether it's over the summer, whether it's now just now starting to draft it, whether it's this fall when we actually, as MCs and small groups, actually dive into some of this stuff in a tangible way, um, the exercise that I just described, it may look like this when translating it to formulating a rule of life. Three. These are just three brief examples, but one, I will put my phone to bed each night, turning it off at 7 p.m. and not turning it back on until 7 a.m. Or maybe it's during my midday workout run, I will use this time for connecting with God through prayer instead of plugging into headphones. Or on Friday nights after our Sabbath meal, that's our designated movie TV show night. So again, those are three examples of from the habits audit example I gave you that it might that might be how you translate it to when you're formulating your rule of life. The audit or the scorecard, it allows us to look at our habits objectively. And then this summer to look at Jesus's habits and the habits of his disciples throughout history. Our aim is then when creating our unique individual rules of life to recognize which of our habits aren't helpful or aren't consistent with Jesus's and simultaneously integrate those practices into our own lives. So to summarize, we want to be intentional about our, re our repeated habits and practices and rhythms because we recognize that they shape us. They influence who we become. And unlike the world, which pulls from this and pulls from that and wonders what kind of person do I want to become, what kind of person should I be, we have a model. And his name is Jesus. And we see him and we follow him and we step into his lifestyle. And as we do so, we have this assurance. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So we set him as our aim, not just theoretically, but also practically, and he does not leave us alone in our efforts. As Paul knew and stated when he said this, I strenuously contend, I strenuously contend, 
with all his energy that powerfully works in me. And again, he says this, work out your salvation. Work it out with fear and trembling. For God, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. True character transformation begins in the pure grace of God, and it's continually assisted by it. The practices of Jesus are not, the practices of Jesus are not a meritorious work. We are not earning anything by them. But in them, instead, we recognize that for spiritual growth and vitality, that these stem from what we do with our lives and from the character that results. Thus, we adopt appropriate disciplines for life in the Spirit. And in this way, we step into full participation and life-giving companionship with Jesus in the life of God's kingdom. And I'll leave you with this. Paul, when speaking of the slow and good transformation that occurs as we follow Jesus, says this, And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding or contemplating the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let's pray.